Welcome to our social landscape. I'm J.R. Woodward. As a PhD student at Arizona State in the late 1990s, I developed an upper division elective sociology course on sport, a class that I brought with me to teaching positions at Montana State University and Flagler College in St. Augustine. I hadn't even realized that you could study sport and sociology until I came across the work of Jay Coakley. Coakley is an emeritus professor and the executive director of the Center for Critical Sports Studies at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, where he's taught since 1972. I've never known quite how to measure these things, but Professor Coakley might be the most influential and broadly read sports sociologist out there. He's the author of the number one selling sports sociology textbook in the world, Sports in Society, Issues and Controversies, first published in 1978 and now on its 13th edition, most recently updated in 2020 as well as over 150 articles and book chapters. He's also been named one of the 100 most influential sports educators by the Institute for International Sport. So when I decided I wanted to talk to an expert in the field to do a survey of some hot-button issues in the current sport landscape, Jay Coakley was the first person I contacted. I spoke with him via Zoom from Fort Collins, Colorado. Once I drink the river dry Just to hear the echo from the other side Good morning, JR. How are you doing? Great. Well, uh, Professor Coakley, welcome to our social landscape. Thank you for uh, taking a couple minutes out of your day to chat with me about the world of sports. Hey, you're welcome. Okay. I received my PhD at Arizona State in 2000, and I taught a sport class there. They had never taught one there for whatever reason. And then I went to Montana State, and I taught one there too. And uh, your work was a guiding really a driving factor kind of in guiding how I uh, approached sport and sociology, yours and uh, Stan Eitzen's uh, fair and foul. So um, I didn't even know you could study sport, you know, sociologically until I came across your work. So uh, first and foremost, I want to thank you uh, for that. I'm, I'm very thankful for what you've contributed to my, to my scholarship. Um, so what made you interested in studying sociology of sport? Was this something before you even got into sociology you knew you wanted to do, or did it just kind of develop as you, as you were progressing in your studies? Well, I'm quite a bit older than you. So uh, when I went to, when I majored in sociology, it was 1963, and uh, and I was on a basketball scholarship, and uh, I was I was intending to go into pre med, but uh, the practices were in the afternoon. It was a small liberal arts college, even though we played a, the equivalent of a D one schedule, uh, and our practices were in the afternoon along with the labs. So. The coach immediately told me when I got on campus that I would have to switch my major. So I got into sociology, which really interested me, but I didn't think about sport at, at that particular time. Uh, I went through my whole undergrad not thinking about sport from a sociological perspective. When I went to the University of Notre Dame, I uh, some some bells rang for me as I looked at what was going on on the campus. And by the time I was choosing a dissertation, I, I had read Harry Edwards' book, uh, The, the uh, Black Athlete, and Jack Scott's book, The Athletic Revolution and Athletics for Athletes. And, and I got an, interested in, in the sociology of sport. My advisor, when I asked him if I could do a dissertation on sport on the Notre Dame campus, laughed at me and said uh, that he wanted me to do something serious and that if I insisted on being frivolous, I would get nowhere in sociology. So wow. So I waited until I got my first job and, and then I started uh, to, to read more and found out there were actually sociologists, mainstream sociologists, in addition to Harry Edwards, who were doing some work. And so I, I became interested, started teaching when I went to the University of Colorado. I taught a regular course, been doing it for almost 50 years now. But it was my background in sport that kind of kicked me into 
gear when it came to being interested in it. I had four sisters who never had a chance to play on an interscholastic sport team. I grew up in Chicago, went to school in the middle of the city to a high school that didn't have sports. Uh, we, we formed a team and played in city leagues and the CYO and the BBYO. And, wow. and I met a lot of, of uh, people who came from backgrounds different from mine. I worked out the, the, at the DePaul Settlement House on the north side of Chicago with a lot of uh, African-American athletes who I got to know and who I found out were struggling with issues related to their own future economic success and upward mobility. And so I had that kind of background. Yeah. Uh, so I was kind of in tune to some of the things going on in sport and combined with my knowledge in sociology, that's where I started taking off. Um, <laughs> and then one more kind of a broad question before I get more specific, but what do you think, uh, what are the insights gained from using sociology to study sport? Well, uh, you know, I see sport as a window into a segment of the rest of society. And so you can learn about what's going on in society by studying sports and sports themselves need to be studied. I mean, we've studied every other major institutional sphere in sociology and asked critical questions about law, about family, education, politics, economics, and so on. So uh, doing that with sport uh, is providing an, a new segment of knowledge in sociology, even though mainstream sociology has not picked up on sport as sport or leisure, by the way, as a major focus in their in their areas of emphasis. Yeah, I wonder why not. It's such a huge industry. I mean, if you add it all all up together, it, it makes a big impact on society. Yeah, I think it's a Cartesian kind of a thing where, you know, the focus has been on the mind, not on the body in so much of higher education and sociology is not an exception there. So sociology has, has in the past, although they're starting to change, certainly shied away from body issues, uh, the physical aspects of human life rather than uh, the cultural, the normative, uh, and, and other kinds of behaviors that are outside the realm of sport. Thank you. Um, so let me ask a question or two about gender, uh, sexuality, gender. So um, if you have a general idea about what would you, um, what do you think about women's sports right now as they stand, particularly compared to when you first started studying uh, gender in sports, how, how are things changed? Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, I got into this uh, right as title nine was happening. And, uh, and at that particular time, very few, girls and young women were had the opportunity to participate in sports. They were doing it uh, in playgroups. You know, some of the so-called tomboys were, were playing with their brothers and the other boys on the block. And they were, they were getting involved that way, but most of them didn't have opportunities to play in school. Uh, it wasn't something that, that was a, uh, added something to your status as a girl, uh, like it did with boys. So, so I've seen uh, girls and women's sports really grow. I mean, the participant has incre participation has increased a couple thousand percent, and uh, and now uh, girls in high school have opportunities, not the exactly the same kind of opportunities as boys, and. You know, there, girls, there's about a million fewer girls playing in high school sports every year, about 1.1 million okay. uh, than boys. So if you look over the last decade, you know, we've got 11 million fewer girls playing right, right. Uh, in, in high school sports. College sports, I don't think there's any universities that have, have reached uh, compliance with Title IX, Title Nine, at least on the big time level. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, uh, so I think when I look at, at women, girls, and women's sports, men, boys, and men have had a hundred years head start to not only build interest in participation and tie it to status issues among boys and men, 
uh, and to get it approved in communities and schools as a, as a high status participation activity. And at the professional level, developing brands, developing an audience, marketing. And so when somebody says, well, wait a minute, women are not generating the same kind of interest as, as men are when it comes to revenue producing sports, I say, well, they've only had 50 years. Men have had 150 years to do that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so let's, let's let women have uh, another, another at least 50, 75 years before you know, we can expect them to be at the same level in terms of generating that interest. And in fact, if you were looking at it from a marketing perspective, you'd say that women's sports actually needed more resources than men's sports because uh, they're behind. And if you really want women's, girls and women's sports to, to be equal to men's sports, uh, we need to give them more resources. Yeah. And let me just add one more thing. We've got to remember that sports, as we define them now, were created by and for men. Mm-hmm. And they were based on the values and experiences and interests of men. And then we passed Title IX, and when some some of the girls and young women didn't didn't come rushing to sports and maybe the set in the proportions that we wanted them to, it was because they were being asked to participate in boys' activities. Right. And if the situation had been reversed, where sports had been created by and for girls and women, men would have been hesitant. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've got these major blocks here that we've, that we've got to get by. And women have not had a chance to have their values and experiences incorporated into the culture of sport in ways that would lead to not just equity, but equality. Mm-hmm. And the only way that's going to happen is if women are in positions of power and can, can move the cultural needle more towards the values and experiences of females. Mm-hmm. And now I'm not saying these differences are essential, uh, you know, in terms of nature, but, right. uh, but girls and boys have grown up differently. And we, we are never going to get equality as long as we're asking girls to participate in activities that were created by and for boys and men. Yeah, that that would suggest we'd need to make some radical changes just to in terms of compatibility. You know, what if the way that we have defined sports is is by definition kind of yeah. excluding you know a group? So it's for the group to get into something that doesn't really support their interests is one thing, versus having them change what those overall definitions of sports are that then fit their interests. Which you know is a, it seems like that's possible, but a pretty pretty steep hill to climb. Yeah, and it, well, it's been climbed part of the way, you know, when, when uh, in the 70s, women got involved in sports, and they were really good. Uh, people say, said they played like men. Uh-huh. And it was almost like you were giving up something related to your gender when when you became excellent in sport. So you were either playing like a man, or you were abnormal uh, on doing, you know, performing in an unnatural way, or you were immoral, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and you would, you would be marginalized as, as a lesbian. Mm -hmm. And at that particular time, uh, that, that really indeed was a a form of marginalization where young women who were really good in sports were called dykes, Mm -hmm. lesbians and, and worse. Mm -hmm. And that discouraged a lot of females, and it changed the way a lot of young women approached their own sport participation. Mm-hmm. You know, they would engage in what sociologists called the female apologetic, where they would highlight the feminine parts of their uh, appearance and their presentation of self in order to avoid this marginalization. Right. And, you know, one of the more current uh, comments related to that is no bow lesbo. Oh. <laughs> so if you don't wear a bow in your hair, right? Uh, you know, show me girls who are playing with short hair, no bows, and no other aspects of the female apologetic. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I will, I, 
I'd be surprised if you could come up with a lot of them, you know, we, right. yeah, they, it also, happens now. Yeah. You'll see it in WNBA and they're still trying to, to uh, express, you know, the fact that they're having a child or they're, you know, this kind of making, making a holding on to whatever society is calling femininity as a way to, to balance out that, that attack really on their sexuality and whatnot, which is, it doesn't seem to have anything to do with athletics at all, but you know, you're right in the popular discourse. I think it does. And that's kind of a segue when we were talking about the resources, what do you make of the, uh, the U S women's soccer uh, lawsuit? Have you been following that? Uh, for equal the the discrimination lawsuit. Sure. So so at this point, just for people who might not know, so they um, the the women's soccer team sued the federation for um, equal pay and some other issues. A federal judge threw out the equal pay, saying they're actually doing fine and maybe even better than men. But he allowed them to still go forward on some of the peripheral claims, travel, hotels, things like that. They have then settled now with the federation, and uh, that allows them to now appeal the original decision that threw out as a summary judgment, just really got rid of it, uh, threw out their claim that they're being discriminated against in terms of pay. So we're sitting at this point right now, it's under appeal. So what do you make of that? Is that going to be successful? Do you think um, they have a chance there? Uh, You know, legally, I think that they've got uh, a little chance. and but we're talking about commercial sport in that particular case, and uh, and revenues uh, are are king in in commercial sports. So, however, however, the U.S. women's soccer team has been the best soccer women's soccer team in the world, and uh, and they have generated. Uh, ratings, television ratings during the last two uh, World Cups for women, even though FIFA only relatively recently allowed them to use the term World World Cup, uh, similar to the NCAA and the and March Madness, uh, you know, where FIFA uh, refused to allow them to brand themselves. Uh, with the standard symbols of global soccer. And so on the one hand, we've got women who are generating some revenues or ratings that are equal to those of men. uh, And that's something in their favor, but uh, they're, they're not generating on an, on a day-to-day basis, the same kind of revenues that men's soccer is. Have, have generated. So they're going to have a hard time there. But if I was FIFA or USA Soccer, I'd be saying, hey, wait a minute. Our women need more resources than our men are getting because the men have had a big head start. Right. And if we really want to take advantage of this emerging interest, we need to fund women and treat the women the same way we are treating men. We, we can't let them fly you know, uh, under under different uh, conditions than men do to the games. We can't let them play on surfaces that the men wouldn't play on. Uh, we, we can't give them other perks. Uh, we can't withhold other perks that the men are getting. That just is not a good approach to investing in what could be a commercially valuable activity. Yeah, forget the equity part for a minute in terms of, you know, morals or status. Like, it's just not a good economic plan to take, you know. Right. Yeah, you, if you're going to start a new, a new business, what are you going to do? You're going to have to, you're going to have to front load it with investment. And they haven't done that with women's sports. Right. And, right. and that's been one of the things that have held women back. And it's one of the things that the women's soccer players are complaining about. You know, you haven't invested in us. I mean, we've showed you that we can that we can do this, that we that we can turn things really around in terms of revenues. If you would only start investing in us, like any other in a business would do, when you're a startup. Right, right, yeah. And they've their success has kind of 
kind of accidentally hurt them, you know, too, because it looked like they were making a lot more money than the men's team because the men's team has, you know, has sucked for the last couple of years and didn't even make the world cup. So like in that small little window of the lawsuit, the judge is like, man, you guys are doing great. You know, the men are, men are out of luck. You know, It's like they're, yeah. they're being, they're being penalized for their success in that way. You know, but when you take the bigger picture, then it's, you know, it's clearly disproportionate. Right. Right. And, and uh, you know, that's a global phenomenon, not just a U.S. phenomenon. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and it also applies to the NCAA. And any of, oh, sure. any of the people listening who saw the photos of the <laughs> Final Four and the workout room that the, that the men had and the workout room with 10 dumbbells and yoga mats Ooh, for the women. Dumbbells stacked up against the wall. <laughs> yeah, you know, that was just symbolic of what the of the NCAA's approach to women's sports over the past 50 years. I know. Have they not learned like that just even even if you don't mean it, dress it better than that. You know, make yeah, it yeah, yeah. Or at least fake more effort it. than that. <laughs> at least fake it. You gotta get more effort than that. <laughs> right, right. Uh, all right, so here's a tough one. What about the uh, issue of intersex athletes? So um, probably the most, I would say the most famous is uh, Castor Semenya, probably the yeah, South yeah, African yeah. Um, uh, runner. And she, for people who haven't followed this, um, intersex cisgender woman, signed female at birth, um, naturally elevated testosterone levels. And she's a dominant runner. Um, she won a couple world championships and Olympic gold medals. And in 2019, uh, World Athletics is what it is now. It used to be the IAAF um, said that for her to participate, anybody to participate in the 400, 800, or 1500 meter events need to lower their testosterone levels. She and a couple other women uh, have refused to alter their body and are challenging this. And it, currently it's under appeal at the European Court of Human Rights, probably will not be settled by the time Tokyo rolls around in the next couple of months. But, um, but this one, for me, I, I'm, I'm working through how I understand this. This one is an, really interesting because I believe sex and gender are socially constructed, even the biology more than we thought it was 50 years ago, but then also sports are socially constructed. And so we have this just big milieu of trying to figure out what does it mean to be a man? What's it mean to be a woman? What's it mean to be an athlete? What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the, the people in sport are insisting that there's an either or approach to sex and gender and that you're either male or female and, uh, and, and anything outside of those two boxes uh, is, is out of bounds when it comes to sport. And however, you know, we're, we're talking about some interesting cultural things here. The, the women who have been banned from, from participating in international sport are generally coming from the Southern Hemisphere. They're generally women of color. And, uh, and they're being raised in societies where they're born, they've been identified as female, and they grew up as female. They trained with, with girls and with young women as they were growing up. Uh, they've had no questions asked as they were participating on the women's teams. It's only when they got into this international sphere where, where people have had a different approach to femininity, what it looks like, and, and what it should be like. And, and so people were objecting to these women from the Southern Hemisphere, women of color, who looked more masculine, in quotes, uh, than, than they thought was appropriate. And, and by the way, this has been a long-term issue in, in sport. You know, who counts as a female in, in international sport? And back in the 60s, you know, they, when there was a doubt, they actually had physicians and, and others looking, checking the genitals yeah, amazing. Of, of the females. And then when that was defined as being, uh, you know, crossing a line in terms of privacy, yeah. then they used the bar body test where they scraped cells from the inside of your cheek and, and used chromosomes as the measure of whether you were a male or a female, but chromosomes are a little bit tricky here mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to dividing all human beings into two different categories. So uh, when, when uh, there were questions about that, then they started wondering how, what criterion can we use to separate 
men from women and they use testosterone. And the reason that, that you said the 400 and 800 meters and, a, and one or two other events is because those are the events that it appears with research that the amount of testosterone has an influence on, on your performance. Okay. And so they're, they're banning Castor Semenya, who is an 800 meter runner. And by the way, even though she set some records, there were, there were cisgender, uh, cis, cis females who had run faster than her. And she wasn't really, in terms of overall records, the best 800 meter runner in history. Oh no. And, and see that then what happened was that people said that if we allow these, these women who have higher amounts of testosterone to participate, they will destroy competition in women's sports. But then I look at Michael Phelps yeah. and, and some of the other runners in male runners in the Olympics who have set records and won a really disproportionate number of medals because of anatomical characteristics that are unique. Very unique. And, and nobody is saying that when, and I'm just spacing the name of the 100 meter runner right now from Bolt from Jamaica. Yeah, yeah, both. <laughs> yeah, when, when he was running and nobody could, could compete with him, and when nobody could compete with Michael Phelps, nobody in men's sports said they're going to ruin competition and discourage young boys from getting into these sports. You know, because these people have unique yeah. physiological characteristics. Sure. And, you know, they actually said that these men were heroes and that they were going to recruit people into sport and bring eyeballs to the commercial sport broadcasts. When Castor Semenya was setting records, they said the exact opposite was going to occur. Right. So, you know, there's all of these inconsistencies here in terms of dealing with that particular issue. And I'm not saying it's not a tough issue to deal with, mm -hmm. but hey, naturally, Castor Semenya uh, is running. She hasn't artificially changed her body in any way. No. And to ask her to change her body through yeah. hormone treatments or surgeries yeah. mm -hmm. seems to be an unreasonable request. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. Um, yeah. I think about uh, Mark Spitz and you know, that swimmer, you know, he had like certain things in his knees, missing some cartilage that allowed his legs to kick a lot more and his you know feet, ankles, flexibility and stuff like not a normal human being for sure, but right. celebrated, you know, in that, in that regard. Right. If, if you're not normal, as a male, you're a hero. If you're not normal as a female, you're a freak. Right, right. And that's that's the set of conclusions that need attention. Yeah, good, thank you. Um, so quickly, uh, let's talk about race for a minute. Then I'd ask you the same kind of question I asked you about gender. You've been studying sport for a long time. Um, how would you look at what's happening in terms of race relations in sport now compared to over the years that you've been studying this issue? Yeah, I, and, I've, and I think it's similar to gender. I mean, obviously, there's been progress with respect to gender. Uh, there's been progress related to race as well. But, uh, but what we're finding over the last uh, few years is that as people with, with racist attitudes have felt more permission to express those attitudes with the Trump presidency and his own expressions related to issues connected with race, what we're finding is that there is an emerging kind of a backlash to certain kinds of, of issues related to black athletes. And when Colin Kaepernick took a knee, uh, we saw that backlash and and it has affected his life, but it's also affected the lives of a lot of other black athletes who, who wanted to express themselves on various kinds of issues, off the field issues and on the field issues in, in some cases, but kept their mouths closed until Black Lives Matter. Okay. And that 
kind of gave them permission okay. to, uh, to take a more aggressive stance in expressing their, their own responses to their own experiences uh, in sports and, and the racism that still exists in American society and has been institutionalized within various spheres of American society, including sports. And all you have to do is look at the number of coaches and people in power positions in sports, and they're white males. Mm -hmm. And in certain sports, blacks have been, for a number of reasons, excluded, segregated, sure. more than being purposely excluded. So, you know, you look at college teams, and the vast majority of college teams are all whites. And blacks are are focused in basketball, football, volleyball, track and field, mm -hmm. men's and women's basketball. And that counts, that accounts for about 85% of black athletes in college sports. You look at all the other sports and you find maybe a, a black person or a person of color uh, here or there, but you find a lot of all white teams. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Total number of sports that the NCAA recognizes when you throw in crew and swimming and water polo and tennis and golf and field hockey and on and on. Right. It, it looks a lot different. A lot different. Yeah, lacrosse. Yeah, right. it, it goes. Different. Yeah. So gymnastics mm -hmm. and so on. So, yeah, those. So because of housing segregation, because of the. Um, Funding shortages in inner city, uh, you know, schools where and schools were that have predominantly black student populations, you know, they have limited number of sports that they can participate in, and they're focusing in on the ones that a lot of black families feel offer mobility opportunities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is you know not the case statistically you know when you can right. look at how many people really make it right and how many people expect to make it with the the black lives matter do you what's your thoughts about the role of athletes in terms of social issues like this you know this is an old kind of debate too right. um you know do you do you think um do you think they're using the platform in productive ways or wisely or are you of the thought that um they should kind of focus on athletics and not pay attention as much to social issues well you know, there have always been black athletes who have paid attention to social issues. Only a few have spoken out in, in ways that have gotten national attention. And, you know, you can go all the way back to the early 1900s uh, with Jack Johnson and others who were, uh, who were making statements about race and, and social issues uh, in, in connection with the platform that they had related to Sports Now, many of them were marginalized in, in various ways. And it's just over the, it's just over the past uh, few years here that a number of black athletes have come out to the point where it's hard to isolate any one of them and marginalize them. So okay. now black athletes feel that they have uh, not just permission, but they have a platform that they can use and use it effectively. And I think that uh, one of the things that, that I'm waiting to see is, are there going to be organizations formed around these interests where, uh, where the organizations make statements rather than individual Black athletes? You know, when an individual athlete makes a statement, it's easy to separate them and and ask them questions that put them on the spot. Mm -hmm. But when, when you're represented by an organization that makes a statement, that's a little bit different. Right. Then, you know, you have a spokesperson for that organization and you're not focusing on one individual and isolating them. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you're actually getting responses to questions uh, without that kind of marginalization. So I think that that's one of the steps that needs to be taken in the future for there to, to be real resonance, and not just resonance, but systemic changes related to the activism of athletes. 
Yeah, you kind of beat me to the punch there because my last question about race is going to be, why do you think it has changed? You know, I've, I know there's always been people that spoke out, but not, I think of like Craig Hodges giving Michael Jordan a bunch of shit back in the day for not doing enough, you know, in the community. There's always right. been a couple people here and there, but why do you think it's, what, what happened? Was it the Kaepernick thing? You think that kind of really tipped, tipped it over where now more people feel comfortable with it? Well, I think that the Kaepernick thing certainly was a major precipitating factor. Uh, one of the things that really surprised, well, it didn't surprise me, but it surprised a lot of people was that when the athletes started talking out, uh, some of the coaches had team meetings. And, and basically, the black athletes on those teams were able to talk openly about their own experiences. And the white athletes and the coaches were surprised at what they were hearing. And, you know, we're talking about coaches who've been coaching black athletes for 30 years, and they're coming out of these team meetings saying, I never knew that. I never knew that. Oh, man, this is really terrible. You know, this is significant. We've got to really pay attention to this. White teammates had never had conversations with their black teammates about what was going on in their lives and sharing that information. And here we have all these myths about sport, bringing people together, you know, creating inclusiveness, uh, you know, creating social cohesion and all of this stuff. And we have had blacks and whites in locker rooms for the past, you know, 50 years. And whites haven't had the foggiest idea of what's been going on with their black teammates and the blacks that they're coaching. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't want to say that with every white, mm-hmm. but, sure. you know, it was characteristic enough where, you know, it was really surprising to people that there wasn't this kind of communication going on. Mm-hmm. And that shows how difficult it is to deal with race straight up. Yeah, for you know, sure. In terms of people's experiences. You know, blacks have hesitated to, to say this has been my experience because they're going to be labeled as complainers, mm-hmm. you know, and, and then get marginalized that way. Mm-hmm. So the same with women, by the way. If women talk about sexism, they're going to get marginalized and say, you know, they don't fit right. uh, within, to, within our organization. We've got to be careful and, uh-huh. and uh, we've got to vet women and to the extent that they're like men, we'll let them in. But if they're not, or if they complain, then, uh, you know, they're going to be marginalized. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the same thing has happened with respect to race as well. Thank you. Um, last thing I wanted to talk about was quickly about the NCAA, what's happening with the NCAA. So uh, a couple years ago, not too long ago, California passed a law allowing college athletes to sign endorsement deals. Uh, a couple other states kind of got involved in that. Um, it's kind of higgly piggly. The federal government talking about it here, NCAA wants a more uniform standard. So all these things going on, but one case that will have an impact on that, I'm guessing is the Alston versus NCAA, which uh, was argued in front of the Supreme court. Uh, ironically during March madness, they had oral arguments right. and this is an antitrust case. <laughs> and right. so uh, we'll probably have um, an answer here by uh, the end of June, but the NCAA still um, clings to this notion of amateurism. The uh, even though finances have exploded around uh, sport over the years, the lawyer, lead lawyer for the NCAA, in oral arguments, re- replying to Justice Barrett's question, said, "Consumers enjoy watching unpaid people play sports. That's our line. Like that's what they're hanging their hat on. Consumers enjoy watching unpaid people play sports. Uh, so, what do you think about this notion of amateurism? Are they going to be able to continue this kind of a myth or a fallacy of amateurism, or do you think uh, the tide is uh, is rising against them? Well, the tide is rising against them. There's no doubt about that. And 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 I think that." There obviously has to be some care taken uh, because, you know, you're, you're going to find that there will be the highly resourced teams and boosters who are going to become involved in ways that will, that will reshape, uh, you know, come involved in ways of uh, funneling money to athletes uh, that will, that will uh, change the way intercollegiate sports are organized. And I think there's some interesting questions that have to be carefully 
talked about there. And But with that said, the whole name, image, and likeness issue in intercollegiate sport has really been created by the NCAA to keep control of revenues and to maintain power and to boost the salaries of, of coaches and executives in the NCAA. And in the process of doing it, they have prevented athletes from having the same rights as other students. So if I'm an athlete right now and I want to start uh, a, a website where I become an influencer and like my roommate is doing, who's not an athlete and who's making, you know, 1500 a month yeah. doing it. Uh, and I think I could make five grand a month doing it. Mm -hmm. I can't do it. Mm -hmm. Even though I'm technically able to do it and, and I would be successful. And what, what would be wrong with that? Right. If, if I want to coach kids in my hometown in a summer camp that's named after me because I've got a nice reputation locally, I can't do that. I can't make money doing that. So I can't even have a job for Pete's sake, yeah, yeah. you know, making money uh, because uh, that depending on who's, you know, who's providing the job and so on, uh, you know, somebody can't even buy me lunch. Right. Yeah. You know, this is ridiculous. So those are the kinds of things where the doors are going to be opened for athletes. Uh, you know, I think athletes are going to have the same rights as other students. And that doesn't mean that they're, shouldn't be some other kinds of rules here and there uh, to prevent uh, what some teams from becoming so powerful by being able to recruit people because they, they're wealthy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it would, it would destroy part of college sports that way. Although college sports are pretty much destroyed anyway that way. You know, yeah. the Power Five conferences – yeah. are in control and the other sports are losing money hand over fist Pay for football, the other schools yeah. uh, because they can't compete. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So that's even a tough argument to make. Yeah, I agree. I was thinking when you said that, that there, maybe this would force a, a re, I don't know, sort of a restructuring of college sports. So part of it might be destroyed, but maybe that's a part of it that, it's okay to destroy, you know, if it might provide right. better, a better product, you know, on the other side of it, kind of. Right. And by the way, we've lost sight of the educational uh, aspects of sport participation in this whole process of commercialization and, and uh, you know, forcing people to into this amateur mold when, in fact, it's limiting their educational experiences you know, there's no reason why an athlete shouldn't be able to take advantage of their name recognition and give speeches and develop their oratorial skills uh, uh, and meet people, create networks. This is what college should be all about. Right. And so we're really, in, in certain ways, limiting the educational experiences of athletes in order to perpetuate this myth of amateurism. That financially benefits certain yeah. people. Everybody but the athletes. Everybody but the athletes. I remember uh, a quote from Bear Bryant way back in the day saying something akin to, at this level, we shouldn't have to call them student athletes. You know, at this level, they're athletes first and they're students second. <laughs> you know, right. I mean, and, and that's that's Bear Bryant said that. <laughs> yeah, realistically, if you just followed, if you shadowed athletes in these D1 sports, even in the non revenue generating sports, you would find that their sport is taking priority over education in a lot of cases. I don't know what the proportion would be, but it, you know, the proportions would be much higher in, in the big revenue producers than, than the non-revenue producers. Right. But, but it's pretty characteristic throughout yeah. college sport. Yeah. And the coach's, his financial or hers um, success depends on their students being eligible. Right. Uh, and, you know, so they, you know, they sure they want to graduate people, but mainly they got to make sure they stay eligible because they're judged on wins and losses, not the character of the people that they have coached, you know, over these years or whatnot, you know. Yeah. All right. Anything else uh, that you want to talk about? Any hot button topics or things that you're working on or that I forgot? Like, oh, my God, how did I not talk about that? Or do you think we yeah, hit the well, big ones? The big one in the paper lately and the news lately is trans, trans female athletes. Okay. And, 
you know, just today, uh, the big news in USA today was that Texas just failed to uh, pass through a committee a ban on on trans females participating in high school sports, club sports, intramural sports on girls' teams. And and now these bans have been passed in six states already. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're being discussed in 31 other states. So we're talking about 60% of the states in the United States are considering these bans and interesting, the, the, the Republican legislators who are pushing these bans as part of the GOP platform nationally, you know, being anti-feminist, being, you know, and these are, by the way, these are people who never cared about enforcing Title IX to begin with. And now they're all about, oh, we can't let women's sports be destroyed by, by who? Right. And when you ask them who, they can't name one person in the state who's a trans female athlete participating in sport in some way that would destroy opportunities for, uh, for their, their daughters. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is a hot issue right now. It's an issue that's being used for political purposes primarily, but what it's doing. and, And I get a kick out of Republicans talking about cancel culture. They're canceling a whole group of young people who are dealing with their own sexuality and uh, and who they are and how they want the, to present themselves to the rest of people in their lives. And they're canceling these people and saying, we don't believe that you exist when it comes to sport participation. Uh, overall, for sure. Yeah, in connection with your identity. Yep. So, uh, you know, this is... And, you know, three quarters of those young people who are making a transition, for example, are not going to try out for girls' sports teams. You know, they're just struggling to, <laughs> to get through life and make this decision, have the support of their parents and their friends. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, generally, they haven't been people who have participated in sports in high you know, high profile, uh, elite sport training camps and everything else. So this whole issue is bogus, but it's having an impact on young people. And, and this is an issue that we need to pay a little bit more attention to and figure out what's going on and provide support for young trans females and trans males as well. So, you know, this is an issue that we need to pay attention to right now and start focusing on education and how gender is, is something that is more fluid Mm -hmm. biologically and socially than, than most people think and that we need to deal with that issue. You might've already answered this. My last question was uh, if we made this an annual conversation once a year, you and I are going to get together and talk about what's happening in sport. uh, What would we be talking about this time next year? And I I assume some of the things we talked about today would still be salient, uh, but are there any others like what else is on the horizon? And so you've, you've answered that one, that the the trans issue is not going anywhere anytime soon. Anything else you think might be coming up this next year? That's going to be, going to get some yeah. press or some talking. I think that that as e esports become involved, you know, become more accepted in high schools, you know, there's esport teams in high schools and colleges, there's scholarships being given to esports. And esports are raising the question is what counts as a sport? Hmm. And as people wrestle with that particular issue, it may be that that other uh, young people are going to be raising that question too in their own schools. Like girls might say, what counts as sport and why hasn't jump rope and double dutch been included as a sport mm-hmm. in, in among our varsity sports in our school? And, uh, and then other women might be raising some questions about some other kinds of sports that or physical activities that don't count as sports right now mm-hmm. that girls and young women prefer uh, that they would like to see count as a varsity sport. And boys are going to be asking the same questions. And then 
how about more mixed sports, gender mixed sports? That, you know, we could come up with new, new ways to score. You know, you could have mixed teams and, and still have men and women, boys and girls, swimming in gender segregated uh, teams, but you would combine their scores okay. to see who the main win, which school won, rather than having the male team win or the female team win the state championship. Let's combine these sports so that you'd have men and women going for the championship. And that way, men would be, the boys in high school would be supporting their female peers mm-hmm. in sports because they know that the state championship depends on them, sides, yeah. uh, you know, supporting their female peers. Mm-hmm. And so that would be one thing, uh, scoring. Uh, we need more mixed sports like uh, uh, mixed doubles and tennis. tennis. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. You know, in BMX racing in skateboarding yeah, and yeah. in other kinds of sports that we should be including in our high school and college sport programs. We're stuck with a model that's a hundred years old. Right. Right. You know, if it was a sport, uh, you know, back in 1900, uh, we can't change it. Well, mm-hmm. that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, you know, there's no reason, and this will be a contentious statement. There's no reason to have football. Mm-hmm. In, right. in our varsity list anymore. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's damaging kids' brains in some cases. Uh, and that will be an issue yeah. uh, next sure. year or the yeah. year after. You know, the extent to which CTE, chronic uh, traumatic encephalopathy, mm-hmm. uh, may be when we can measure it among living people, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, that will become the hot issue. For sure. In yeah. soccer, and in football. Yeah. And so why not have more sports that are gender mixed? Because that's the way you and I participate in sports. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. when I go out there and play in sports now, I'm skiing with women. I'm playing right. tennis with women. I'm biking with women. Yeah. You know, once you get out of school, all of a sudden, you know, men and women do sports together. Well, why don't we prepare them for that while they're in school? Right. I swim with the master's team that has women and men, you know. All yeah. Yeah. So it's crazy. We're, we're, we're using a system that's 100 years old, created by and for men as an educational system, and it's outdated. It needs to be changed. Uh, and those kinds of changes are going to be discussed in the future. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot for your time, Jacob. I really appreciate it. It's been great. Hey, you're welcome. Talk. Yeah, yeah, it's been fun talking with you, and maybe we'll revisit some of these things next year. Yeah, I hope so. I learned a ton, and so I'm I'm going to keep uh, paying attention to some of these things and uh, see what happens uh, over the next calendar year. But I think uh, I, I think it's a pretty exciting time to be to be studying sport. It it, it is. A hand to hold, there is love all You've been listening to an interview with Professor Jake Coakley on Our Social Landscape, and I hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you did, please take a minute to follow, like, rate, and share the podcast in all the usual places. Many thanks to Jay for sharing his time, expertise, and insights into some issues that interest me personally and that affect the lives of many, whether they're athletes or not. Finally, if you're feeling so inclined, you can push the yellow donate button on the homepage. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at jr at oursociallandscape.com. Thanks for listening. seasons in bloom But August came and my mind's made up August came and my mind's made up